Welcome to Off the Record, where we take a deep dive into the personal and professional lives of business leaders in the Twin Cities. Kathy Rabadou, market president and publisher of the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal, along with Dave Faust, president and CEO of Platinum Bank, team up to listen, learn, and laugh along with our guests as we go Off the Record. All right, on this episode of Off the Record, we have Ravi Norman. Ravi and I, like when the two of us have lunch, I almost think, oh my God, is there going to be a volume barrier broken today or something? Because <laughs> I think, you know, people tell me I have energy and I have a lot of energy. And then I spend time with you and I'm like, oh my God, he makes me look like a timid, shy quiet person. Well, this is going to be fun then. Yeah. So we know that's not a hundred. <laughs> yeah, we, we do know that. <laughs> so thanks so much for being here today. This Absolutely. is super special. I know you, we know each other and I know a lot about your story, but what we like to talk about it off the record is obviously your career and things you've done. And we want to hear about Sigility, but also okay. growing up, how you started out, your family, your siblings, kind of how you ended up to being here with us today. Absolutely. We get to go into the real fun stuff. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, you know, my story actually starts in Washington, D.C. So Sibley Memorial Hospital is where I was actually born. Very interesting, though. My mother immediately moved us in with my grandparents in Trenton, New Jersey. So uh, so I am the product of a, a bit of a broken home. So I didn't meet my father until I was 15 years old when I came out to Minnesota to visit him. Mm. And honestly, I didn't live with my mother after fifth grade. So I live with my grandparents. Uh, John and Mamie Vaughn, and then my grandfather passed away when I was uh, 13. So I wound up living with my grandmother in Trenton, New Jersey. Grandmother was born in 1911, rest in power. And uh, in our house, we had uh, my older sister, who was the only full sibling I had. I had uh, others that were had siblings, and five cousins and an uncle. And so the boys lived downstairs and the girls lived upstairs. <laughs> and so learned early about what fragmented family looks like. And, you know, we all are looking for a certain level of kind of love and nurturing and investment that comes from the family. And uh, I give testimony that it can come from the family, but then it can come from surrogate people as well. Mm-hmm. So the uh, Williams is across the street, Dave and Willa Mae Williams, rest in power to both of them now. Uh, I spent more time there than I did in my own house. And then my best friend growing up was a guy named Delmar Glanton. Uh, who we called nicknamed Snap because he was a little nuts. Uh, <laughs> but his grandmother named him that, not us. And I uh, spent a lot of time with him too at his house. So I spent a lot of time outside of my house getting the love, nurturing, and investment that all kids are looking for. How long were you in New Jersey? So I was there all the way through high school. Uh, I went to Ewing High School, and which is in the township of Trenton, New Jersey. And left there and went on a basketball scholarship to Winston-Salem State University. How have we never, you know, because I played basketball and I don't know how we've never talked about this. I don't know how we haven't ever. I always told people that I was an honorable mention McDonald's All-American <laughs> before I was 19 and that the rest of my life I could spend doing McDonald's Happy Meal kind of promos <laughs> uh, based on my body type now. Uh, I always tell people that when I was young, I had this vision that I wanted to be Dr. J. Julius mm-hmm. Irving, oh, yeah. great mm-hmm. player for the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah. He was Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> but when you look at body composition, he was 6'7", played at 190, and I'm 6'1". We won't say how much I weigh. Charles Barkley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles right. So just, uh, just body type said that the probabilities of being the next Dr. J probably weren't in the cards, but I took it as far as I could to play basketball at Winston-Salem State University. Talk more about those early years playing mm-hmm. sports and growing up in school. Yeah, you know, so a couple things on school, I always say, you know, when you're like young people, they're always dealing. And when you think about school, kind of your parents may get in yourself, focus on academic stuff. And then there's all the social pieces that you really get, which is really where the real good stuff is right? <laughs> when you're growing up. You know, academically, I had a cheat code. I tell people all the time that you know I got great grades in high school, great grades in college, and I never really worked that hard at it, mainly because I have a photographic memory and I didn't do anything to inherit that. I got that. That was a God gift. Maybe it's in the DNA of my parents, but neither one of them have it. So it didn't come from necessarily them either. It was a huge variable though, because in the rope method of education, it's a lot easier if you can remember all the stuff you just read and then be able, and most of the tests are some level of regurgitation of that that you read. So I didn't have to work that hard to get really good grades, which is really important when you're young, especially considering the environment, condition, and circumstances I grew up in, which were pretty non-traditional and not necessarily a lot of time for repetition. (laughs) So the academic piece was that. And then socially, 
I probably learned more in basketball mm. than I, about what it means to truly be a champion. And what does it mean to kind of work inside of group dynamics? And how do you create synergy in my basketball experience, to be honest with you? So my senior year, we won the group three state championship in basketball. I was the MVP, but I don't say I was the MVP because it means anything other than, you know, I got a lot of credit for what we did as a unit. Mm -hmm. And none of the players on my team ended up going D1, really, you know, big time D1. Winston-Salem State, historically black college and university, but it was more 1AA at the time that I went. Like three of the teams that we beat on the march to the championship, all D1 type players. And so I always tell people there's a secret in that to winning, a success formula for, you know, the secret. And it wasn't because we had to necessarily, if you took us to a combine, and just measured like athleticism and how many shots could you hit in a row and how great your ball handling and how fast and how high could you jump and your agility drills, all the stuff that you would do around the cones, we would have got swamped. They would have been like, there's no way these guys can win a championship. But when everybody understands their role and everybody's willing to kind of put ego aside and you recognize the different parts that it takes to actually win, which isn't just putting the ball in the mm -hmm. basket and it's preventing people from putting the ball in the basket, but there's a lot of things that go inside of that that helped yield that outcome, setting the pick, playing good D, some guys on the bench just being really geared up like ML Carr was in the 80s for the Celtics, right? <laughs> I mean, and all of that played to us being able to win games that just straight talent-wise, we should have got creamed. But we realized the secret. We played for each other and we created synergy together. So talk about how the coach pulled that out of you. Yeah, so we had a great coach, Amo Wandition. He's in the Hall of Fame there in New Jersey. And, you know, he, we were the second team ever in our high school to win a state championship. The first team to win the state championship was actually in 1986. We won in 1992. And 1986 was the first championship they had ever won with uh, the best player on that team was a guy named Tom Savage who went on to play at Rutgers. And the second best player on that team was a sophomore named Kelly Williams. So you heard me earlier talk about the surrogate family that lived mm -hmm. across the street, David and Willa Mae Williams were the parents. Well, Kelly was the guy who was four years older than me. And in all your neighborhoods, you're always looking for somebody you can aspire to be like, you know, for the world in basketball. It's the reason that that like Mike, yeah. if I could be like Mike, <laughs> yeah, I want to yeah. be, I want to, right? Yeah. That whole concept of aspirationally, can you see something that you would like to be in the traits that you find that you want to try to be able to repeat? And Kelly was that. He was a great basketball player, but more importantly, he was a great guy. Uh, he also did pretty well with the ladies. <laughs> you're in New Jersey. You're at school. I mean, you didn't have to really do much schoolwork because you had a photographic memory. <laughs> so, and you're playing basketball. Did you work? Did you have odd jobs or did you? Yeah. So I always had a little bit of the entrepreneurialism component, right? To be able to kind of look and see, is there something in demand and then something where the supply side isn't yet meeting that demand and can you step into the middle of that, right? So I started that with paper routes. So my first entrepreneurial endeavor was actually paper routes. I love it. And I learned a lot about how business works inside of that paper route. So my cousins and I, and I told you I grew up with siblings that were more like cousins because they were cousins, but, um, and so we wound up all having paper routes. Well, they didn't like to get up and do their paper route. So I figured out, listen, I'll give you, and I gave them a little bit of money to just stay in the bed. Give me your routes. I'll do them. I'll get them done. And these things, I mean, I would start out at 5 a.m. and get it because you had to have these things in by oh, yeah. a certain time. And That was my first uh, job, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah. And so I started realizing route. that other people don't want to necessarily do the work. So mm -hmm. I could get their paper route. If I figured out how I could make money on it, then I could give them a little bit and just get more paper routes that way. And it was a great model. I was making money, except for my uncle used to make me hand the money into him. And so I learned a long time ago that eventually I don't want to work for anybody else because when somebody else is over governance and gets to control how things happen, now I give him the money. And then when it was time for him to give me my money back, how he was always short. And I was like, what are you doing with the money, man? Like, you know, like so it became a, that was my first, like, okay, if I'm going to do it, I want to be able to control where the cash is coming from and the decisions that get made at the governance level. But that was it. The second piece was, they had Sam's Club. Now, you know, Costco is where I'm at now, but Sam's Club was where I was in New Jersey. We had a little, you know, buy on a, you get all the economies of scale oh, yeah. per unit cost benefits. And so I'd go in and figure out, you know, kids like candy. And they actually like, like we had these quarter water juices that they would have there and they'd sell them in the big wraps. 
And I'd figured out, oh, I could do all of these things. I'd freeze them a little bit at night and take them in and they'd be almost like slushies that I have in my locker. And I had candy and I was ultimately making about 45% margins on that stuff, which is pretty good. Sell it at school. Absolutely. And no one ever came and said, you can't sell it at school. And for some of the stuff they were selling in my school, it was a lot better than I was selling <laughs> quarter waters and candy. <laughs> Growing up and you're with your grandmother and you have the Williams and you have Kelly Williams. So tell yep. us about a little bit about your relationship with him and how did he have an impact on your. Oh, absolutely. I mean, all young people, you're always looking for mentors. Right. right? And again, that whole concept of something you can aspire to be mm -hmm. as great as Dr. J was and Michael Jordan were. And I aspired to be both of those guys during my time when I was you know, growing up in my first you know, 19 years of my life. I couldn't touch those guys. I could see them on the TV. Right. I could maybe go to a game when, you know, in Philly, you go to the right. Spectrum and catch a game. Yeah. We didn't have that kind of economics in my family, so we didn't get to many games. I maybe got to one in his whole career. So I couldn't touch them. I could see them, but I couldn't touch them. The fact that I could go somewhere across the street and have a tangible place for aspiration and inspiration, critical. Because we're all trying to figure out, like, who am I? What can I be good at? You know, where can I find this level of self-esteem? And again, we're looking for that love and nurturing and trust and investment that comes from usually your bloodline and family, but also from a group of friends. And he was the guy who spent time with me, dedicated himself to time with me, talking with me, helping me become a better basketball player and giving me little jewels about life. He's now one of the few African-American athletic directors. He's the athletic director at Kane University in New Jersey and a very and still my brother to this day. But taught me a lot. You know, I'm, the concept of figuring out your passions and then trying to figure out what is the aspirational greatness you're trying to achieve mm -hmm. are the first two parts to me of how do you drive towards success before we get into production and innovation and resiliency and those kind of things. So when you were playing basketball, you were dreaming about Dr. J and kind of all those things. But did you ever think about business of being an entrepreneur? So just, you know, the newspaper and the selling of stuff at school, I already knew that I'm, you know, Kathy says I have a lot of energy. And sometimes I can, you know, that energy comes across. It also means I have probably some control issues. And so I like to do things the way I like to do them. I realized that very early. And so I figured out that, like, I'm not going to last very well in somebody else's game, right, that mm -hmm. they're controlling. Like, I'm going to need to be in control of stock, of my ideas, of how they get converted into opportunity. So I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur early because I knew I was always going to be really hard for somebody else to manage. Right? And then ultimately, I had my own concepts of, and I was a big dreamer, you know, and I had to in some ways. I mean, I talked about my uncle, but he was a heroin addict. And the only male role model in the house when my grandfather had passed away at 13. That's not easy to grow up around. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things that happened in that environment that were abusive, to be honest with you. And so part of me getting out of the house was, hey, I got to get out of that environment, condition, and circumstance. So I was a guy who early dealt with things. Shot in the seventh grade. I mean, like real kind of the stuff that you talk about, well, okay, if you start running probability factors of where he's going to end up, you know, those cousins I grew up with didn't make it out of high school. One died, the others are, you know, have turned to other alternative ways to make the economics work. And so... I overcame a lot of things in the environment, condition, and circumstance, and a lot of trauma. That is not probably, I mean, everybody deals with trauma, but there was a lot, honestly, before I was 16. Basketball was critically important to being able to kind of transcend that and the Williamses and other protectors. Uh, and then this concept of, I'm going to have to be my best equity. I started figuring out, like, if I'm going to transcend environment, condition, and circumstances, I'm going to have to dream big, I'm going to work really hard, and I have to get competent in something. <laughs> in order to be able to transcend the environment's condition and circumstance. That all led me to start seeing myself a certain way. And I saw myself as an asset because in that environment, you can sometimes start to see the liability that comes as a derivative of that conditioning. But I kind of always, and I, and I give a lot of this credit to God, to be honest with you, the relationship, a spiritual piece of living your best life, which I acknowledge is kind of a belief in the supernatural and a belief in the, you know, kind of a divine order mm -hmm. and, you know, trying to have key words for the words like luck, <laughs> mercy, grace, and faith. And all of those to me are underlying tenets that are going to help you also be successful in no matter what, including an entrepreneur, because the waters for entrepreneurship are always a bit choppy. And I've experienced them myself in this town, actually. And how do you kind of get up and continue to be resilient and fight through things and environment, condition, and circumstances so that that vision of yours can continuously be attained? 
Um, I knew that early. I knew I was going to be that guy. I knew I was going to be the kind of guy that says I wanted to control. I see myself as an asset. If I want to get return on my asset, I want to learn a lot from other places and people and companies, but I want to own my own. And I knew that early. So you're at Winston and you're, you have a basketball scholarship. I do. Tell us about your college years. What was that experience? Like? Yeah. I mean, did you go, did you even need to show up in class? Or? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I won't talk about my attendance record in, in, in classes, but I will say just track my GPA. That's the only, <laughs> that's the only unit of measurement that we're going to track in terms of what was going on in college. But I will say, you know, again, I'll come back to, I did really well academically and it wasn't bit easy, but the social part, I was skipped ahead when I was in high school. So I actually was in college at 17. So that is the biggest challenge to college. Wasn't obviously the academics. It was being 17 with a bunch of 20 year olds, right? And, <laughs> and being able to kind of figure out what that looks like now. I And um, it was a really interesting cultural dynamic at Winston-Salem because down South has a bit of a different culture than growing up in the Northeast. And anybody, even today, if you go to those two places, you go to the South, you go to the Northeast, a little bit different cultures, right? And so that probably benefited me too, because the fact that the pace of life where I grew up and in the way I grew up was pretty fast. So to get to Winston-Salem, that delta between normally what a 17-year-old would have to do in the world of 19, 20, 21, 22, 23-year-olds, because I had such a fast-paced life and had packed a lot into that 17, I was able to adjust a little bit better on the social side because it was a little bit slower culturally. It was moving at a slower pace down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina than it was in Trenton, New Jersey. Absolutely. And so that was very beneficial. Um, and it was a great experience. And then uh, my mother got sick. And so when my mother got sick, um, and I had half siblings, I had mentioned two-year-old and four-year-old brother and sister. And so my sister and I, my older sibling that I mentioned was full sibling, we kind of became de facto responsible for our younger brother and sister. And so I actually left school for six months, was going to, you know, working at UPS, trying to make money. My sister was doing the nurturing side and I was trying to do the financial side. But ultimately, we recognized that if we're going to really change the financial trajectory of the family, somebody has to get back in school and finish. And so my sister called my father, who was living in Lakeville, Minnesota. And again, I had only met him one other time at 15 years old, but I had a good experience with who his wife was at that time. Now, my dad is you ever heard the song, Papa Was a Rolling Stone, oh. <laughs> wherever he laid his head? Kind of my dad a little bit. He's like on marriage four now. But at the time, he had a great wife, Patricia Gallagher, um, who was one of the national sales managers for a company called Noritake, which used to, biggest client used to be Dayton Hudson's mm -hmm. Target. And so she was located here. They had kind of relocated from Temecula here, or excuse me, from um, Tacoma, Washington here. Um, so I got an opportunity to come out here and try to figure it out. And of course I thought, well, I'll just get a basketball scholarship. That's pretty simple. I can use basketball to get wherever I want to go, right? So I thought I was going to get a basketball scholarship coming out here. Uh, I was getting recruited by Rich Glass University of North Dakota at the time to do a you know, kind of transfer. I was playing in a Howard Pulley League that they have here in the summer leagues for professional players. And that summer, I think Vashawn Leonard and Bobby Jackson were playing. And um, I think I was at the, had a great first game like 26 <laughs> points and you know, I was like, who's this new guy? Well, the second game, I was on a fast break and the guy went to take a charge and I fell and broke the humerus bone in my right arm in the Howard Pulley League here in Minnesota. So the aspirational dream of I'm going to use basketball as the way to finish out what's going to be my kind of undergraduate career uh, changed because um, obviously I hadn't signed anything yet. The assistant coach at the University of North Dakota, Jim Severson, got the head coaching job at the University of Minnesota at Morris. And that's where I ended up finishing my undergrad degree. Now think about that. A kid from Trenton, New Jersey, goes to Winston-Salem State, has to leave school, comes back and has to get with a father that he doesn't really have a, a deep relationship with and ends up in Morris, Minnesota. In the middle of Minnesota. Right. And, and as I'm driving on the campus, I'm like, I am going to have to major in agriculture. <laughs> there are sheep and cow and horses and things that I've never really been around in these like concrete jungles of New Jersey to being right here where like this old campus, this is a different environment. What I got a pleasant surprise though is that it had one of the highest percentages of minority students in the university system because a guy named uh, Bill Stewart had created a minority pipeline to Florida, Chicago, and New Orleans. So there was like 14% of the population, student population was students of color, which was like completely mind-blowing to me. I'm like, 
they're black people here. <laughs> I mean, nothing against the whole conversation, but when I was in, when I was growing up in New Jersey, I mean, you guys didn't get much love beyond Prince and Kirby Puck. Yeah. I mean, like it was like, okay, well, what is this going to look like? So, and then when I go to Morris, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is Minnesota, right? Because I didn't spend that much time in the Twin Cities area. But that's kind of the the story. And then uh, if it and then inroads kicked into my life, which was huge. I mean, I was looking for. What's going to be kind of basketball was the anchor. What's going to be the new anchor? The new anchor was business. And I got that through Inroads. Inroads was sponsored by, I think at the time, it was 48 to 50 of the Fortune 500 that had committed to saying we're going to improve our pipeline of minority students and create internship opportunities for them and some community service stuff that they had to do. And I wound up getting into the Inroads program and got connected to Norwest Bank. And then that's kind of how the business stuff started to roll. So you started out as a banker? I did. I'm, a, I'm you know, these were Dave's always years just perked. There, up. There's it's always like, oh. recovering banking and, and lawyers, right? Bankers and lawyers are always recovering consistently. And I was one of them, right? So, yes, I did. I, I worked at Norwest Bank. I, I got to give a shout out to a guy named Mike McHugh, who became a great mentor to me. So, I had this inroads internship and I had a chance to work in central credit underwriting for a lady named Marilyn Dahl, who used to run the small business and central credit underwriting group for what was then Norwest Bank eventually became Wells Fargo. If I could give counsel to anybody in an internship, I would tell you the one, what I did in my internship. So in all these big corporate internships and all the inroads interns come in, in the first week, you know, you come in and they give you the big policies, procedures, manual. They're like, okay, hopefully that'll keep them busy for a week. And we don't have to figure out what to do next with the intern, right? And so, so you know. I, I am dying you, because that is so true. And, and, and so I'm, I'm reading the policy procedures manual and doing my thing. Now, here's where the, um, the photographic memory really, really helped me in this, in this internship experience because I had the chance to go around, I decided, you know, I'm going to talk to all the people that are actually here. They have all the experiential wisdom. They know what's going on here. So I'm going to ask them how they're doing in their jobs. And you that's when you find out that a lot of people aren't getting engaged in the companies that they work for. Mm -hmm. They're there and they're present and they're working. But in terms of right, legitimate, authentic, true, full engagement, you can tell. And the reason you can tell is when you start to ask somebody some questions, they love to talk to you about it. Like, Nobody's been asking me this, and I don't feel like you're going to judge me in a bad way, right? right? So, so they start telling me everything about this is what's going on, this is what I want to do, this is what my challenges are, this is what you are know, preventing me from being able to yield the output that I want, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, of course, because I'm not writing, because that's the other thing. If people are talking and you're writing, they get very self-conscious. Mm. What is he writing? And who is he giving it to? <laughs> right? It's like, and so I didn't write. I'm just categorizing, you know, categorizing and segmenting it all in my head. But at the end of it. It was an eight-week period, and I come in, and my last day, and I talked to Marilyn Dahl, and I said, hey, you know, you got 30 minutes. I'd love to kind of wrap up my internship experience on my last day by, you know, presenting my document. And she goes, presenting what document? <laughs> and I said, well, I have this best practice document from my experience here at Central Credit Underwriting. And she's like, well, who told you to do that? <laughs> I had nobody. I thought, it needed, I, 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 I thought it should be done. And so it is a classic example of that piece I always talk about, you know, in this equity calculation, and we can talk about that in a little bit. I always say you're responsible for generating some things as an individual, a group, a community, et cetera. And I break them into three categories, dreams, effort, and competency. So I decided I, I had a big vision. It was bigger than the vision of who was responsible for my internship. Yeah. Like they have a different vision for me, right? They're like, <laughs> let's get this guy through. We got a nice like minority guy here. We can help check some of the diversity stuff too along the way. And, you know, maybe this guy's going to be talented. We can figure. For me, it was like, I want to be the next CEO. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go on this path of what this experience should look like if that's the vision, right? Like not, I'm just trying to get through these eight yep. weeks. And in doing it, it unlocked new opportunity for me, honestly, because mm -hmm. I got through and Marilyn Dahl said, hey, hold on. Turned around from her desk after I got done my presentation, called Mike McHugh. Mike was over the um, investor developer real estate and 1221 Nicolette Mall work for uh, Norwest at the time. And a year later was going to be doing a billion dollar securitization for Norwest Auto Finance. And so when he, I, she sent me, and I didn't have a car or anything when I'm doing my internship experience. She's like, hey, do you have time to meet with an Enroads intern? And she, he's like, yeah, tell him to come down in an hour. I'm like, well, I don't think he understands that I got to get on three buses to get over to him from down here in St. Paul to get to six to Marquette, right? But I got it done and I got down and, and got there and then did my presentation. And he stopped me halfway through and said, do you have a mentor? I said, well, in business? He said, yeah. I said, no, you do now. And he became kind of a great champion for me through the rest of my undergraduate time at 
University of Minnesota Morris, in fact, bought me my first six suits. And I didn't really, I'd never bought my own suit or had them buy me a suit up until that point. And he bought me six suits. And uh, my senior year, I didn't have to do uh, any, take any classes because I was actually working on a static pool analysis for that billion dollar securitization that he was doing and paid me to do it while I was in undergrad. And I went to and said, this is a practical application of a bunch of theoretical framework stuff. And as long as I maintain a certain GPA, I don't want to have to go to class my senior year. And I didn't have to. Well, I didn't have that same college yeah. uh, <laughs> path, right? Unbelievable. That's and then story. I got married in undergrad. Yeah, I married my wife, Amanda, who's from here, um, Leech Lake, Cass Lake, part of the Ojibwe, American Indian, was a great student. And I think the most beautiful woman in Minnesota. And ultimately, uh, I decided early, good investors, right? They figure out like, okay, let's get in now before this appreciates <laughs> too much more. And, uh, like, why mess around? And 27 years later, I'm happy to say that we're still together. So You met in school then? And we met in Morris okay. and got married uh, our senior year. So after you got married, then where? Uh, then down to the Twin Cities. So I, I went, after I did this static pool analysis, they asked me to be part of uh, their corporate banking training program where they recruited a combination of uh, MBAs and undergrad. I got one of the undergrad slots and wound up doing a year-long program that you basically go through rotations of the bank, come back and do class pieces that are facilitated by a guy named John Wright at the time. And then ultimately went right out of there into working full-time and in the small business group. So tell us a little bit about when you came back here, when you came mm -hmm. here and you were started at UM Morris. So tell us about your relationship with your dad because you had seen him once, yeah. right? In 15 years. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, you know, were you living with him and Patricia or were you? Yeah, I was. So I lived with them. I got, I came out and I lived with them for two months in the summer mm -hmm. before heading to the Morris in the fall. So I had a, a couple months there where I was, you know, there and, um, you know, part of the household dynamics and uh, got to spend more time talking to my dad, trying to, you know, figure out why he made some of the decisions that he made as a, as a grown man. I never really got, I don't think I ever agreed with what I learned, but at least I learned mm -hmm. like, and I got to hear his perspective and recognize that, you know, everybody has their own trauma and is, I guess, trying to do the best that they can with the trauma that they're dealing with. And so we um, unfortunately, don't talk much mm -hmm. still. He's not engaged in my my kids' lives, unfortunately, which I'd like him to be, but it's just not in the cards. So you're at Morris, you meet your wife, you yep. guys get married your senior yep. year, you're working, you have a job. Yep. And then what? You're working for someone else. Absolutely. And you knew back when there was the, you know, the paper route and the candy, yes. the slushies, yes. that that was not your dream and you're a big dreamer. Absolutely. So at what point are you like, okay, I need to go out on my own. Yeah. So it was planned to say, go to the big companies early, honestly, because they tend to have a better system for training. You can learn sometimes. I mean, you can learn great in any environment. Don't get me wrong, but they have resources to be able to kind of get you trained, understand what that developmental cycle is supposed to look like, track you through a lot of different opportunities, et cetera. So, and, you know, we have it in banking. I knew it was, you know, even though it's changing, in terms of how banking works, it's still around, right? And um, I knew it was going to be something that I could learn a lot, banking and finance, regardless. And the small business experience, I think I had 2,000 customers or something in my portfolio. You can imagine, like, I'm not seeing 2,000 people, right? And some of the credit stuff that goes on, a lot of it's going to be, you know, underwritten through algorithm. And now even more so today, but even back then for the smaller accounts, there was kind of more of a, a central credit underwriting process that was, you know, could be more automated. But you got to see what aspirational entrepreneurs are doing, where the real innovation happens, right? I mean, and where people are coming up with these great ideas and taking the risk and what does it look like? So it wasn't a better place for me to actually get trained up to and what's working what's not working? You're like, why is it working? Why is it not working? You know, what are some of those things relative to success? But yeah, I knew, I knew I was, so I didn't, I didn't stay there that long. I was only there for a few years before I got uh, bumped to be one of the youngest Twin Cities commercial banking managers uh, with the Highland Banks mm. uh, and the Wall family and ability to kind of be part of opening up their Minneapolis office mm -hmm. in downtown. It's that office, unfortunately, isn't open anymore, but uh, it was pretty thriving for the time that I had it there. And I, you know, I was able to you know, win a lot of awards on volume and deposits and loans and et cetera. And I liked that fact of building something from nothing. But then I also it helped me reinforce the fact that 
well, I could be doing some of this stuff on my own. And that was my first real kind of, if I would say from corporate to true entrepreneurialism in the level that, you know, we think of it as, was me deciding to do syndicated loans. You know, deciding that between my experience at Norwest and Wells Fargo and this experience uh, at Highland Banks, there are some limitations at the smaller banks relative to legal lending limits and the size and complexity sometimes of the deals that you can do unless you're going to do it in a kind of participatory or correspondent lending type of environment. And so I started to have clients who still talked to me, but didn't know if I could get the deal done at Highland, but knew me from the Norwest and Wells Fargo days and would still call me for recommendations on things that they should do. How could they get their deal done, et cetera. So I said, you know, I think I could do this on my own and decided to start the syndicates and syndicated loans. And um, I think I had $176 million worth of loans in the portfolio, closed them, made 87 basis points on the spread. And I wasn't 30 years old and I had grossed a million bucks. Look at that. This is probably wow, like yeah. your love I'm language. I'm taking notes here. You're like, uh. <laughs> And I thought, oh, wow, this is, I love America. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you started your own company. I did. I started the syndicates. A guy named Terry Linner, who was one of the eight partners at Goldsmith Agio Helms, gave me some startup capital. You know, I was actually uh, coaching basketball in the Adina Basketball Association. And I got to meet uh, Terry Linner because uh, I was coaching his son, Barrett. And we were at what used to be the old Palomino. I think it's great oh, yeah. now. But oh, yeah. we, were, we had we were sitting at Palomino and he's like, yeah, so tell me more about, you know, what do you want to do? And so I was telling him what I was doing and I went in, and literally he basically said, here's, you know, I got a blank check for you. If you wanted to open a donut shop, I'd invest. I mean, like, I believe in you. And that's a pretty cool thing to be able to say. I mean, especially in a town that sometimes there's been a conversation about whether or not African-American entrepreneurs can get access to capital and that family and friends around is tend to be a place that can be a little bit of, has traditionally been a little bit of a desert sometime for the minority entrepreneurial community. I had a different story. That I actually, there was this white guy, Rene Dida, who <laughs> really believed in me because a lot of the reason he believed in me was he saw how I interacted with his son mm-hmm. and the level of leadership that I had in coaching basketball. He's like, this guy's dynamic, smart. Like, what does he do every day? Like outside of the basketball <laughs> thing. And so um, there was that. And that was great. So I had an opportunity to do that and worked out well for both of us. And, and then I just decided what did I want to do next? Which is interesting because you originally thought back when you were playing basketball here, right? And you got it before you got injured. You thought that was your way to business. Absolutely. And it kind of came full circle because this is how you met Terry, right? Is coaching a son in basketball. Absolutely. So it it really did Absolutely. a different way. But you made your first million bucks. Yep. And then what? Well, so for me, I was very much uh, spending a lot of time around. So I was working on a hypothesis too. So I have this kind of, I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm a bit of a nerd. So I'll be the first to admit it, especially quantitative stuff. And so I was like, Hey, I want to build this. I've been working on my own hypothesis of just life. Like what does it mean to be successful because of the environment condition and circumstances mm-hmm. I came out of? I thought one of the ways to pay it forward was to not let it just be an anomaly story but to talk about what's kind of the decipherable blueprint around some of the success factors that I can be documenting as I go and I can continue to evolve with empirical evidence in my own career. So I had been working on something called STAR, Strategies for Transparency and Asymmetric Relationships. And the reason I, I think anybody who feels like sometimes maybe your value is a little concealed, that people don't really get a true read on the level of your stewardship because they don't know all of the starting input situations. They don't know all the structural challenges that you've had to overcome. They don't know sometimes the lack of support in order for you to re- kind of do your visioning effort and conference. Right. They and see stuff. you here. They're like, they, oh, this guy's making they don't money. Know. He's doing bad. They're That's like, right. they, they know. didn't know you grew up Absolutely. and the Williams helped raise you. You ha- you know, your parents were gone. Like nobody gets the behind the scenes. Absolutely. And a lot of times it's not having requisite access So I was always about, okay, can I create a model that improves access so that people can actually get access to wherever the dance is, the party is, or wherever the market might be? Like, can we create access? And then once you give them access, can we actually drive opportunity allocation? And what does that need to look like? And then from there, can we have the appropriate levels of recognition and et cetera? So I built stars to say, I could see the demographic shift even back then. I could say, look, if you just look at what birth rates look like, more and more people of color are coming in to be part of the U.S. 
population. So that means the supplier diversity ecosystem is going to need to become more and more efficient and effective. So I actually sought out. So the first thing I did is I said, I, from just doing loans, you know, loans are great. You chase them, you get the loan done, the transaction, you make your 87 basis points on the spread and you make some money, but it's a big chase and there isn't any equity in it. I mean, other than the equity in the business of the balance sheet that I already create, but there wasn't any like you get any residual value from the deals that I was doing. So I was like, I want to do a small cap private equity fund that's kind of start to focus on minority owned business ecosystems because I could see that there was a lack of access to capital and I want to be able to put some capital into that and not just financial capital. I want to be part of the governance model. I want to see if I can, you know, be part of the management of a good business and grow it and, and build equity, et cetera. So that was the syndicates two version. And in that process, I said, I'm going to seek out who does the certifying of this ecosystem. And I found out that it was at the time, the Midwest Minority Supplier Development Council. It's now the North Central Minority Supplier Development Council, one of said councils. It was at the time, I think one of 39 councils that all reported up to New York to the National Minority Supplier Development Council. It basically does the certification that most of your, all your Fortune 500 companies use when they're quantifying their supplier diversity activity and spend. They do the certification to say you are in fact 51% owned, controlled, and managed by one of the designated ethnicities that work inside of that ecosystem for supplier diversity spend um, for that particular designation. And I think it's five kind of ethnic classes that were in that. And so I wanted to get involved in it because I thought, well, if you're doing the certifying, you're kind of the hub where the supply and demand interaction in the ecosystem happens. On your one side, you have MBEs, minority business enterprises, who are trying to come in and say, this is what we offer. This is our product. This is our good. We want to market it. On this side, you got big corporations who say, we want to buy and find minority entrepreneurs, and you're doing the certify. So if I can figure out how to get involved in your strategic plan, what a good idea for my equity fund, right? That was kind of my model. So I didn't do it all altruistically. Yep. There was a level of altruism too, because I wanted to see successful entrepreneurship because I had already believed and later got confirmed through some empirical data that uh, entrepreneurship has a much more effective way in closing the gap in the wealth gap than even job creation. Although you need job creation to build skills, but, mm. but entrepreneurialism is where the wealth gap gets um, uh, produced. And so I knew that that was the key that we were going to have to be driving black wealth through black business as kind of an initiative. That was part of my altruism piece, along with wanting my equity fund to be able to find new opportunities. And so I did. I went into their office and said, okay, what's your strategic plan? And then I found out that they didn't have a strategic plan because the board and the current executive group were kind of at odds a little bit on some things. So never let a, you know, never waste a good crisis. I said, <laughs> why don't I come in and I'll write your strategic plan for free. And they said, we like that idea. I said, okay, it won't be completely free. I'll charge you $600 for six months because I didn't need the cash. I had cash, I had liquidity, but what I needed was understand this ecosystem, make relationships. And so I did, I wound up writing their strategic plan in 03 uh, and laying out for them this concept of STAR that they needed to create these a new informational efficiency platform that was going to drive this ecosystem of where things were going. It's when I learned about some of the things that were hurting the whole conversation around supplier diversity and that it wasn't a primary value strategy at that time in the early 2000s. Maybe it was for some of the car companies and consumable companies who recognize that uh, minorities actually buy cars and spend some of these consumer <laughs> products. And so maybe we should think about trying to build some affinity with them. But a lot of the other corporations were still trying to do it as kind of an ancillary marketing endeavor, didn't see it in the primary value chain. And the reason I know that you can always track two things to know if it's in the primary value track. One is the people that are allocated to it. And the other is the money that's allocated to it in a budget. And neither one of those were necessarily as great as they could be from those organizations. And I recognize that just from that experience because the board of what was the Midwest Minority Supplier Development Council was all supplier diversity people from the organizations. And what I recognize is that a lot of the human capital allocation at that time was either the really young minority who was early stage in their career, but was a minority. So you could send them out to the trade shows and do some of that activity and outreach work. Or it was the white executive who was at the ready to be put out right before being going into retirement because they had already done all the kind of principal things they were going to do in their career. And so neither one of those are your primary value strategy players, right? Mm -hmm. So you kind of recognize that. And I recognized it because when I did this strategic plan and I was saying, you guys should create this new informational system and you could change the way business gets done. The one lady, and I won't name her because I won't shame her, but she did say, 
you know, you're Buck Rogers. <laughs> and at the time, I didn't even know who Buck Rogers was. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Until I went back home and figured out that Buck Rogers was like a space guy. And like, you're, you're like on a different planet than we are right here. And I was like, OK. So then when I wrote the plan, I said, look, I'll give this to you. This is what I would do in your organization and to drive your strategic plan for the next three to five years. But if you don't mind, I want to apply this in a private sector way, since you guys say you may struggle with implementation on this. And so I did get that right. They had a right to do it, but so did I. And I wound up actually developing a technology called STAR, Strategies for Transparency and Asymmetric Relationships for the Minority Supplier Development Ecosystem that I thought was going to improve the normalization to trade between supply and demand in that market. And it was going to be also help my equity fund, right? So I did all of that. And in the process, I met a guy named, at the end, I was giving a presentation about it. And I, in the audience was a guy named Richard Copeland who came up to me and said, and I actually didn't know Richard. I knew Archie Givens, who you know, recently passed away, rest in power, because um, I was on the Alumni Association for the University of Minnesota. And I was part of the committee that was like choosing who was going to be the president of the Alumni Association because they forecast that stuff out. So I got to know Archie through that environment. And Archie and Richard were brother-in-laws but really weren't doing that much work together, which I didn't really and clearly understand. So, but I got to know Richard anyway. And so Richard basically said, hey, come to Minneapolis Club. I want to have lunch. And when we did, he like, literally, I sat down and he said, so tell me about you. And I gave him like what I was doing and what I had been doing. He goes, okay, well, I knew you were cool. I didn't know you were that damn smart. <laughs> I need you to help my company. And so he asked if I would come in and help facilitate his strategic plan, which I was open to for two reasons. One, I had an affinity for where is if black business is going to be the main accelerant to black wealth accumulation. And I would pull out these lists like the ones that you produce here. Right. And I'd see Thor and Copeland trucking really would be like two of the only black companies that I would often see on this minority business list at the time. And they were both owned by Richard. So I thought, so this must be where the kind of where the center of black entrepreneurialism and, and then Archie as an extension, you know, I was extending this and I thought and the Gibbons family, Archie Gibbons Sr. was the first black millionaire in Minnesota. So I'm like, this is the epicenter, right? <laughs> this, so I need to get in there. That was one. The second piece was for Star, I needed to start overlaying my technology with some use cases in order to build the valuation of it. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, hey, and what better than construction? I never thought I would be in the construction industry, but the reason I got involved in it because one of the overlay star because it was so fragmented. If you look at the way the design, bid, build model works in construction and all these different subcontractors and all the different labor, and yet it was still hurting for productivity increases. So I thought, oh, this is going to be a great place that I can overlay star and show how star through that removing of the asymmetries and connecting supply and demand is going to make the whole normalization of the trade process going. That's kind of how I got to four, mm -hmm. which was like well, after I was 30, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go work in a place where the best black business is. And then I'm going to go figure out how to take it to an even greater level, not knowing if I would even invest in it, but just I'm going to be part of taking it to the next level. And I'm going to deploy my technology and I'm going to get to know Richard better as I do it. And I, hence, I spent the next kind of 14 years of my life, like literally in the Thor ecosystem, the first four really in this outsourced fashion where he kind of used me and my kind of profile as his private CFO, private labeled CFO, even though I wasn't an employee. I was kind of an outsourced guy all the way until actually I didn't become a full time employee there until like 2009. But from 04 to 09. When I came in, Thor was like an $18 million in revenue company. And by 2008, we were like $174 million and had this exponential growth. And then it was an interesting year in 2008, you know, for construction companies in general, just and for the world, right? Because the fourth quarter, we started feeling what kind of feels like the times we might be at now, right? With the precursor to a, a big recession. And then he had a whole bunch of other personal things in his personal life that impacted his ability to continue to manage and govern the business the way he wanted. And he asked if I would lean in in a much more uh, intentional way. And I did in 2009. That was to become the CEO of the company. It was, it was. And honestly, you know, at the time we had to, it was a survival play, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. And I, I made the decision that said, don't know if construction is where it's at for me, just because the business model is tough, you know, low margins, you know, you can't really sell that business for much, maybe two times book value or something like that. And a lot of risk. And so that's not necessarily the ideal business that I would have that I would jump into, but it was where the black entrepreneurial ecosystem was kind of revolving around. 
Richard had an unbelievable sense, you know, for rest in power to him too, but um, when he was alive, unbelievable charisma. So what he didn't have in necessarily formal education, he had in like hard work and charisma. And so I was uh, really attracted to that too. And to be honest with you, I will say this too. Part of the decisions to be at Thor weren't just about business for me. Um, I was also looking for black male leadership because of the dynamic with my father, mm -hmm. that there was a void there for me. And I was looking for someone that was an adult African-American person. And honestly, I said this at Richard's funeral, I spent more time with him than any other adult black male in my entire life. Because my grandfather was gone when I was 13. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know my father, right? And most of the other people that I spent time with, I just you know, didn't spend as much time as I did in that 14 year period with Richard. To become CEO during the Great Recession, the start of the Great Recession. Talk about those big decisions and things you had to do differently just to survive. Yeah, well, I mean, first off, I mean, we talk about the low margins and the high risk. It's also if you're going to self-perform, which we did as a general contractor, we weren't just a paper general contractor who then let the subs do all the work. We actually self-performed concrete, which is one of the first sub-trades that exist in a uh, construction uh, project. So it's very capital intensive. And that means capital intensity also requires some things relative to financial liquidity, which comes in the form of bonding. And so, you know, with some of the things that happened, Richard lost a significant amount of book value in 2008 because he went through a divorce. And uh, that's one way to lose book value fast, right? And so there was a, a pretty significant depletion in the book value right away in addition to some of the other things that, you know, he needed some help with. So taking the role, I knew that I was coming into it, not at zero, that I was coming into it with a company that if we couldn't figure out how to navigate through these waters may not be around much longer. And so, and we did a lot. We did a lot with what we had for you know, a long time. And there's some legacy projects out there that you'll always remember because of what Thor did too. So how old were you when you took that role as CEO? Yeah. So I would have been 35. Yeah, I would have been 35. And, you know, I made kind of, I said to Richard that I don't really want to run a construction business, but I'm, I want to run a full-fledged real estate firm because I just thought that we would have to diversify away from the construction risk if we were going to be able to be successful. And it took a while to try and get there, you know, because just navigating through the things that were just, you know, dealing with the construction risk inside of it. But, you know, eventually, you know, we did, we started one of your 2023 CEOs, who runs Neo Partners and got acknowledged this year, D'Angelo Stankinson. Well, he cut his teeth and, and, <laughs> and it was in at Thor and bringing in that development arm. Um, he reported to me and I think hopefully he would say he learned a lot in that process. I think he learned a lot of what to do and some things that he probably learned like, hey, well, these are things that I can do better in terms of you know managerial um, things as well. But we brought him in. Uh, we brought a, a lady who's also done very well as a designer in town. We brought her in to run our design business at that time. We brought another lady, Leah Hargett, that was on Demars Hollingsworth. Uh, Leah Hargett, we brought in to run our, basically my star platform and our consulting practice. And then we also acquired the majority interest in what was then JIT Services, which is the new, is the agility business I run today. And that's on the utility expense side, gas, water, electric, uh, on the operating expense side of real estate. So I had built a lot of those things at Thor, uh, unfortunately, we weren't out, able to outpace some of the construction risk that actually happened in the business. But I feel good about what we did there because I look out and I see D'Angelo's doing well. Mm. Right? I see that. I know we helped seed that entrepreneurialism. I know that I see what um, DeMars is doing and that we helped seed that entrepreneurialism and what Leah's doing still. And we helped seed some of that entrepreneurialism. And then myself, what I was able to do with Sagility. So it's a it's a good story about Thor because, you know, for what was the downfall at Thor for the construction operation and that, you know, we probably, you know, it's a big institutional player to not have in town. We seeded some new businesses that mm -hmm. came out of that entrepreneurial ecosystem that are still producing value to our region. Tell us about the transition. So things at Thor wrap up mm -hmm. and then tell us about Sigility and how kind of that transition and yeah. how you moved into doing Yeah, Because you had started that, like you said, you had already started down that path while you were at Thor. Absolutely. So, well, first of all, I'll say this. You know, banking is a very interesting place, you know, traditional commercial banking, you know, investment banking and commercial banking are different, but the commercial banking side, they love to give money to people who don't need it, right? And then sometimes struggle giving money to people who need it. 
And then it gets really hairy if you're on the what they call the loan workout side of the banking ecosystem when they are giving you money and now it hasn't worked out and they got to figure out how to work out of that. So uh, I learned a lot in that process, right? With the, what went the whole Thor dynamic. Um, and so my goal in that was, okay, how can I both get some of these entrepreneurs successful to take the things that they're competent in? And then I looked at JIT and said, how do I negotiate to be able to buy that asset? Because I think it is a really important business. Um, and it is, I mean, if you start thinking about the ESG trends, when you start thinking about mm -hmm. the synthesis of environmental, social, and governance, I mean, that's our wheelhouse at JIT, which was JIT, now Sagility. Sage advice and agile utility data. Um, we are managing uh, utility expenses for about 15,000 buildings across North America. We do all of General Mills, all of Ecolab, all of Medtronic, all of Health Partners, Google, Patterson companies, you know, we have an extensive commercial and industrial client group that for some of them, we actually pay their utility bill. So we're the ones that are actually grabbing the utility bill from the utility, posting it up into their accounting ledger system, paying the utility bill on their behalf. And then off of that data source, producing a variety of high use alerts and scorecards and accruals and budgeting and other things that give them some key insights into their consumption utilization. And then we're taking that data and we have a group of what we call rate optimization specialists. So they're basically running all their stuff against tax code to see, do you have any billing errors? Do you have any rate changes? Do you have any sales tax exemptions that you should qualify for that give you free money? People tend to like when you give them free money. If you can say, hey, Ravi, you take the risk on finding it. And then if you find it, give me 60 cents on a dollar. Not a bad idea, right? So we do that as part of our business model, just producing one-time rebates and other cost avoidances from the rate changes and, and other things in the bill audit review. And then we have a group of energy engineers who truly are about the consumption side of the work, doing capital projects, energy efficiency projects, uh, renewable energy, lighting retrofit, water efficiency projects. And I should say, we have a huge multifamily vertical as well. So we do all of the work for Dominium, we do all of Sherman's properties. We do all of uh, Greystone, Kittle, the Michaels organization. Um, so we have a huge footprint of multinational corporations on the commercial and industrial side, as well as uh, multifamily clients that we do a lot of work for. And it's all really about, you know, very simply, can we reduce your utility bill? Can we improve your sustainability metrics in the process? and maximize DEI impacts because every time we pay the utility bill, they get to count that as tier one spent. What's the future of the business? Are you growing to other markets? So we're a national player already. Our footprint is across all of North America. I think we have buildings that we manage these utility expenses for in 46 of the 50 states in the union. You know, we are obviously, some of our customers are multinational, so they're all, you know, part of that expansion conversation for them is, all right, let's get outside of the U.S., Let's get outside of Canada. Let's get outside of some of the stuff that we do in Latin America. We've been a little hesitant on some of the work that we want to scale into kind of the global arena because it adds more complexity. For the rate optimization work, obviously, that's tied to tax code. So tax codes aren't the same around the world as they are in the United States and maybe Europe. So, so that also makes it something that makes us want to focus more on North America and U.S. But in terms of this payment model that we're doing, that has obviously some tentacles for global scalability. So what does a typical day look like for you at work? Yeah. So what does a typical day look like? For a week. So right now I'm working out five times a week with my wife, Amanda. We get up in the morning. We're members at Oak Ridge uh, Country Club. That's where I play my golf with all my buddies over there. And so we get up and we go in and work out in the gym. I just try to get that in five days a week. And... Um, you know, I told you earlier about my body composition, right? Why I couldn't be in the NBA. It also means that if I don't work out, I'm going to be 400 pounds. So uh, yeah, working out with her just for, you know, health and, and those things, because I have found that a lot of the charge, you can start to get into uh, kind of keeping score on the scorecard economically. Like, how are you doing economically? You're not easy to measure. You can measure how much money you're bringing in. You can measure how much you're retaining and protecting, et cetera. But the economics are a bit of a lagging indicator to your stewardship in the other areas of your life. So we have this kind of, my wife and I have this mechanism of trying to say, living our best life, we have to measure what's going on spiritually, mm. emotionally, mentally, physically, 
and relationally, and that those are actually the things that drive economic outcome, certainly long-term economics. And so we spend a bunch of time thinking about what's going on in those areas. You know, so and you have, have kids? Three kids. I have a 25-year-old, uh, Sydney, who is working at Baker Tilly, living in Chicago. And then I have a 19-year-old, Richard, who is... Uh, just finished his freshman year at Loyola Chicago, and he's staying with his sister. I was saying before uh, we got on uh, the air here that he made a conscious decision to say, after my freshman year, I don't want to come home and hang out with you and mom. Um, <laughs> yeah, Chicago's though, a pretty yeah, fun place. And, and Chicago's yeah, a pretty yeah. fun place, absolutely. So he's staying with his sister and doing some internship work, and he's staying down there. And then we have a our youngest is uh, getting ready to turn 13. She's a, And her name is Sayla. And she's over at, in Minnetonka West. And they all had different experiences. You know, our oldest was a K through 12 Breck. Our, you know, Richard was a Notre Dame Academy and Benilde. And Sailor is Notre Dame Academy now going in the public arena in Minnetonka. And all had choices to do whatever they wanted to do. But we let them kind of drive to, you know, what was important to them. Did any of them get your photographic memory? No. So that <laughs> means that they're much more disciplined students than I ever was. <laughs> Well, let's ask Ravi some rapid fire questions. Yes, please. I love to. I love it. Where would we find you on most Saturday mornings? What do you do? On the golf course. Absolutely. Especially, well, seven months out of the year, right? Not necessarily the five months here. But uh, from as soon as the course opens until uh, the course closes, I have a group of buddies Saturday morning, guys like Steve Silton and Jack Fitterman and Shout out to Brad Bernberg and Mark Ratner, my, all my golfing buddies who we have a Saturday morning crew that gets out. And we book those things. As, you have to book the tea time a week ahead. So as soon as the, as soon as the week opens up, Brad and his crew is on it to get about, it's about 12 of us who actually play in three foursomes uh, every Saturday morning. I look forward to it. Now, this Saturday, uh, we won't be playing because we have our, our member, member uh, Christensen Cup on Saturday. Are you the possessor of the cup? Have you won yeah. the cup? I am not. So I, you know, it's a member member. So you play with another member. I'm playing with Steve Silton. Uh, he and I have played together for four years and we have not won any of them. <laughs> and, and so they have a designation where you can get to win, place, or show. And so you get into a show where you can have the showdown piece that you get to. That's our goal. It's like, let's just get to the show piece. Like <laughs> we may not place in the top three and we certainly may not win. But let's show this weekend. <laughs> so all of you who are listening out there, come over to Oak Ridge if you get a chance and, and cheer on the Silton Norman twosome. I sense there's a little competitive nature yeah, for Robbie think, here. You think? Oh, what's your favorite restaurant in town? You know, it's surprising. I, you know, I love Spoon and Stable, but I'm kind of, I'm still partial to 112. Ooh. I mean, I, maybe because I'm a sucker for the Badino and the Trace Leche's Cake. But uh, <laughs> the Fogwell meatballs aren't bad either. But uh, yeah, I still like 112. That's my, that's my spot. Awesome. So we talked about Kelly Williams. And you think about your life and all the things that, and obviously you're successful, you know, you're spiritual, you have a great marriage. You know, you're, you're really, all the things you grew up not having, you've Absolutely. created in your life. So when you look at what you want your legacy to be, what is that to you? Yeah. So, you know, some of it I will say is there's a real like th one of the reasons you get into development or construction and those things is because you do have a desire to be in something very tangible when it comes to legacy. They're called buildings. <laughs> right. And so that's one part of it is that literally I can look back and say some of the great work that we've done with Mortensen in town. I can look at some like right in North Minneapolis. You know, now there's more people doing some great activity over there. But I think in 2017, when we put a big class A building and put everything we had into it, like it leaves a legacy. And now that is owned by Stair Step Foundation and Build Wealth. So it's owned by the community, which is really the great vision that I wanted anyway. It wasn't just about bringing Thor back to into North Minneapolis. It was about catalyzing hope, having people see this as economic vibrancy and places that people could have as a destination spot. And now there's more of that activity happening, things that mm -hmm. Tim Baylor's doing, things that Bill English and Devin George are doing, you know, things that there's a variety of players that are right now, Anthony Taylor and some of the stuff that he's doing over there. I mean, I just see that that legacy of being intentional, trying to invest in maybe what is, you know, a tougher environment, condition and circumstance relative to market characteristics, seeing the intentionality and seeing people being committed to that still, uh, that's part of the legacy, I think, for me. 
The other side of the legacy is this concept of entrepreneurialism that and that you definitely have to follow your passion and you definitely have to aspire to greatness and you definitely have to produce excellence and you definitely have to innovate continuously. But maybe one of the biggest parts of the legacy for me is how resilient you have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's not the things that challenge you in the environment, condition and circumstances or even knock you down. It's how often are you willing to get back up? And how often are you willing to stay in the fight to be able to kind of continuously come back again and go, well, I have more vision. Okay, I, I'm willing, I'm aspiring to new levels of greatness. I'm willing to put in the work to produce excellence. I'm willing to innovate and figure out how to continuously improve the things that I'm doing as an individual and what I'm representing in the institutions I'm a part of. Um, that's part of the legacy too. And I think it's been something that you know others can say that inspired them maybe a little bit or actually had positive impacts to their own entrepreneurial journey. I think that's part of the legacy for me too. Do you ever reflect back on kind of when you were at that paper route and you're today, you're reflecting on those times and you say as, wow, look how far I've come. I mean, it's amazing when you told the story about your, your home and this college and the transfers and the relationships that maybe weren't all that you thought they'd be. And do you ever look back and say, holy cow, Absolutely. In fact, at my business, you know, it's easy to kind of quantify and see the things that we're doing on the green side of the equation. Like my whole agenda right now is black and green, the synthesis of black and green. The green part, people kind of get quickly when I talk about the fragility side of the world, because we're talking about how do we reduce consumption? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we save water? How do we save, ele- you know, less electricity and gas usage to be able to produce what the end is going to look like? But there's a black experience piece to this that's a part of my life story that you just kind of denoted. That's a part of the synthesis as well. And I think it's I kind of use that black experience a little bit synonymous with how I define equity. And there's a lot of people that talk about equity. I'm very specific when I talk about it because I think it's a stewardship ideal. I think it ensures dignity and respect for everyone, not just any particular identity group. And that ultimately all it is, is can you ensure that there's a positive correlation between two sets of data on one side? internal generation. You're responsible for what you have to internally generate as an individual, a group, a community, et cetera. And that is, I break it into three segments, dream slash vision. Like you got to dream big, you got to have a big vision and you can't anybody kill it. You got to like stay with a big dream and a big vision and keep calibrating that. Big dreams and big visions aren't enough. You're also responsible for effort. Mm. hard work. There's something to the Protestant work ethic, right? Like, you know, you read what you saw. So like that conversation of I'm willing to do all the discipline effort, but dreams, vision, and work don't mean competency, like a demonstrable skill or trait of something. And so you have to have all three that you're responsible for generating. Now, when you do that to your maximum ability, you can and should have a positive correlation to what's happening in the external provision environment, which I kind of segment into three places, access, opportunity, and recognition. And you need all of them, right? Because you need access, always equate the, that conversation to like being in seventh grade and wanting to get to the dance. Yeah. <laughs> like the ticket gives you access. But I want an opportunity to dance with somebody. Yeah. I want to be like Whitney Houston. I want to yeah. dance with somebody, right? I want to dance. That's the opportunity. And then when I do it, if I cut the rug, I want people to say, he yeah. can dance, right? That brother can move, right? So recognition has to be there as well. All three have to be working together in the external provision, but it has to be correlated to the internal generation or else you get inequities on both sides. You can have tons of examples where it's like, Boy, they have, sure have a lot of access, opportunity, and recognition, and they don't seem to be dreaming that big, don't seem to be working all that hard, and don't seem that competent. And the flip side is true. They're not, there are tons of dreams, vision, effort, and competency there, but they're not getting access. They're not getting opportunity. They're not getting recognition. So that measurement model is where I think equity lies. Now, equity can't be cafeteria shopped, meaning that you can't just evaluate it at a point in time. Why? Because I say there's an R factor to it, a resiliency factor. That has to measure three things, starting inputs. You know, there's a difference to get the home plate. If I started on third and you started on first, you traveled a lot further in that distance to get the home than I did. So starting inputs matter. Where'd you start from, right? Structural challenges overcome. Let's say you and I both start on third and we're trying to get the home, but my path is oiled and I could just slide on in. Your path from third to fourth, even as the, though it's supposed to be the same distance travel, we put spikes all along the way for you to go. And you got to try to figure out how to navigate around those spikes in order to get to home. It's not the same distance travel because it's a different structural challenge overcome to produce the output. 
And then finally, there's a support mechanism. So you got starting inputs, structural challenges, but in that same support mechanism, let's just say that there's a whole bunch of people that just allow me to like, they just pick me up and they just carry me down, right? Like that's support mechanisms and measuring those are important as well. Because when you account for those three things, now that applies to anybody. I don't care what gender, mm -hmm. race, uh, sexual orientation, class, you can determine stewardship from that. I think that's super critical because in that equity calculus, I think under that definition and application, it does something that's really important to everybody, which is it accelerates the diffusion of innovation. Everybody buys innovation, right? That we want to do this renewed concept of new creative means, methods, and methods for production. However, do we know what the biggest dilemma, this is Clay Christensen's work, not mine. What's the biggest dilemma in the innovation diffusion? Anybody ever looked at the innovation? He has a whole thing on the innovator's dilemma and how the distribution and diffusion of innovation works. That's why you get early adopters and, and then you get some that are laggards and this whole, the early adopters piece. What is the biggest obstruction? If you were thinking about, it, let's just use this here. Let's say I come up with this new innovative way to do podcasting. This is how podcasting should be done. Here's a great idea to have it done. What is the biggest issue to you embracing? Whether Maybe I have some credible innovation. What's your biggest issue to adopting it? Change. Change. And why don't you like change? It's comfortable. Trust. The biggest variable and accelerant to the diffusion of innovation is trust. If I trust the source, if I trust Kathy and Kathy comes up with a good idea, I'm like, yeah, I might. Let's try that. If I don't trust you and you might have a quality idea, I'm going to be like, yeah, that's maybe a little denial, ridicule, maybe a little marginalization. So it hurts the diffusion of new innovation, which we all know innovation rates are critically important. Equity under the definition that I had, if you can see it and really see, is there an equitable environment around dreams, vision, competency against the access, opportunity, and recognition in the resiliency factor? If we've measured the starting inputs, the structural challenges overcome, and the support mechanisms, everybody can find that to trust that evaluation. So then that helps when an equitable environment happens. And so we're doing it at my company in our, our head of people and culture, Kim Forensic, if you called her and talked to her, she would tell you, we actually run success dashboards that measure what people, their vision, their work plan, their challenges, what do they want access to? What are they looking for for opportunity and how do they best see recognition for themselves? That way we're not guessing, like we can see what people think and then we can actually start to use that mechanism to say, once we're doing that in our culture, now, when I start to come up with new people, new process, new technology, all these new things that are going to help drive innovation, people embrace it because they trust the source. So equity is then a precursor to driving innovation. And everybody understands that innovation is the precursor to driving transformation. So that's my big piece is like equity plus innovation can yield transformation. And that's when we create the kind of synergy we're looking for, whether it's in an organization, in a community or in our region. And we're gonna mic drop it with that. Yeah. Oh. We, I mean, Ravi, fantastic. First of all, thanks so much for being here today. Great story. Congratulations with everything. And, Thank you. you know, especially with your 27 years with Amanda. At, at almost 12 years in, I'm like, okay. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I mean, work. I, I'm 48, gonna be 49. So I've been married longer than I've been alive. <laughs> when you look at the other half, right? I'm 22 to 27. <laughs> Thank you yeah, so thank much you. for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for downloading Off the Record. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And to learn more, visit bizjournals.com slash off the record. This podcast is a presentation of the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal in partnership with Platinum Bank. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.